0: I want to invite you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue in our series that we have entitled The Invisible War, a series where we are learning together how to fight against uh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And I just want to say again, um, uh, welcome to everyone, and on behalf of the pastors and members, if you are a guest today, we really are so glad uh, that you are here. We do not want you to just feel like a number or a face in the crowd, uh, we truly want you to to go from feeling like guests to family, and so if there's any way that we can serve you at all. Uh, I'll be at the front door. would love to connect with you uh, as you walk out. Well, in 1993, Walter Isaacson, who was then a journalist for Time magazine, was interviewing Woody Allen about his infamous affair with Soon-Yi Previn. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, basically, uh, Allen uh, was married to Mia Farrow, who was a well-known actress and model who had adopted Soon-Yi as a little girl from South Korea and as the story goes, years after Sun Yi was adopted, Mia found nude photos of her adopted daughter and her husband Woody Allen's briefcase. Uh, come to find out, Woody Allen, who was 56 at the time, and Sun Yi, who was 21, had been sleeping together for a few years. The two of them then went on to uh, date in public, and eventually they got married in 1997. And if you're reading Isaacson's interview, which is really a fascinating case study on the human condition, I mean, he is just relentless. He continues to go at Woody Allen. He's persistent. He's trying to figure out why did you do what it is that you did. And Allen, all through the interview, refuses to take any blame, refuses to admit he did anything wrong. And at the very end of the interview, there's this iconic line where Allen, in an attempt to justify his affair with his stepdaughter, said, and I quote, the heart wants what it wants. Now, fast forward 2019, 16 years later, and you would think that because Alan gave his heart what it wanted, that he would be perfectly happy. However, in a recent interview with David Segal of the Washington Post, he said the following, life is like a concentration camp. It's very hard to keep your spirits up. You just have to keep uh, selling yourself on a bill of goods. And some people are just better at lying to themselves than others. If you face reality too much, it's going to kill you. It's just an awful thing. And in that context, you've got to find an answer to the question of why should I go on? Now, the reason I share that this morning is um, not to throw Woody Allen under the bus, but, but listen, though I know most of us would never agree with Woody Allen's actions, I really believe that most of us are tempted to believe, like Woody Allen, the same lie that says that if you're going to be happy, that if you're going to be fulfilled, that you just need to give your heart whatever it wants, that you need to follow your heart's desires. And as popular as this message now is in our culture, what I want you to see this morning is what we often refer to as the desires of our heart is what the Bible refers to as, as the cravings of our flesh. And the flesh, as we're going to see this morning, rather than being our ally, is actually one of the three enemies to our soul and society. And this is where we get this from. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully you're there by now. And we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to be reading, by the way, from the NIV translation. And as always, if you want the notes to the sermon or some of the points, you can get that off the YouVersion app that's made available to you. But Paul here, writing to the church of Ephesus, says the following. As for you, you were what? Dead. It's important for you to know that before you met Jesus, you were not just kind of struggling along, but you were spiritually dead, which means you did not have the capability to move towards God without God first moving towards you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So kind of like this zombie who just kind of walks around looking for flesh to eat, like, like that was us. Like we were in this zombie-like state, spiritually speaking, just feeding on our flesh. And he says, following his desires and thoughts. Because of this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So because of just the fact that we have a human sinful nature, Paul says we are all deserving of hell. Yet, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. I, I love how Paul phrases this. I love that he's so clear in here to say that, that if you were here today and you've experienced salvation, it is not because God looked at you and said, you're really impressive, or you've attended church enough now, or you've put enough money in the basket, or you finally have whipped this sin, or you have a lot of gifts that I could use, therefore I'm going to save you. No, according to Paul, if you have been saved, it is not because you are impressive, it is because God is rich in mercy. Paul then goes on and says this iconic line, it is by grace, it is not by your works, it is not by your resume, it is by your grace that you have been saved. Now there is so much in here that we could unpack this morning, but for our purposes together, I just want you to notice how Paul ties together the world, the flesh, and the devil. Did you see it in the text? The world. He says, you and I once followed the ways of the world. The devil. He says, we also followed the ruler of the kingdom of the world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's just another name for the devil. And then the flesh. He says, you also once were gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts, and as a result, you were by nature children of God's wrath. This is where we as a church get this language for the three enemies of the soul that we've been talking about in our series, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's where we get the language to try to name this tension and this inner tug-of-war that each of us feel in our bodies and outside our bodies, this tension between good and evil, between heaven and hell. And to summarize um, how these three enemies work together against us, what we have said over the last few weeks, and you can it on the screen, is that the devil, as we've already talked about, he wants nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy you. That is like his main agenda in your life. And therefore, the strategy for trying to do this is, as you see on the screen, is to sell you on deceptive ideas or lies that play to our disordered desires or flesh that is then normalized in a sinful society. And as you know, if you've been here the last three weeks, all we have been doing is talking about the devil. And about his strategy to feed us lies. But today what I want to do is we build off this definition is to show you how the devil's lies are not random. Like they're not just like, he's not just trying to feed you generic lies that have no emotional value to you. So for example, when you think of the devil, don't think of him like sitting in the background being like, hey, like I know the internet says that Paragold is 299 feet above sea level, but actually that's a lie. It's 300 feet above sea level like, believe it, like, live if it's true. Like, he's not doing that because at the end of the day, like, who cares, right? Who cares, right? So when you think of the devil feeding you lies, don't think of him feeding you like these random generic lies that have no emotional value, but rather think of him as a brilliant marketing strategist who has targeted you and has studied you for the purpose of feeding you lies that he knows will play to your disordered desires or what Paul in Ephesians 2 calls the flesh, And when you think of the flesh, which is a word the Bible uses over and over again, don't think of like the skin that covers our body. But rather, when you think of the flesh, think of this animalistic, primal drive inside of you for self-gratification. Think of the part of you that is bent in uh, towards yourself and away from God. The part of you that listen to me says, if it looks good, or if it feels good, then I need to pursue it no matter what. God's like, this has become the mantra of our generation. Like we are now living in a culture where we are replacing authority with authenticity. What I mean by that is we are living in a culture where more and more we are seeing people pushing aside the authority of, say, a teacher or a coach or a parent or a pastor or even God himself, and instead are choosing to do whatever my heart or my authentic desire tells me that I should be doing. And if you've got a psychology background, which I know several of you in the room does, you know this idea of authenticity over authority was popularized by Sigmund Freud back in the 1920s. And what's interesting is despite the fact that psychologists now tell us that Freud basically got everything wrong, this is the air that we are breathing right now. Like it is the way that most of us think that life works best. You can remove that for a second, Tim, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But I think it's important to note that before we ever get to Freud and we're influenced by his ideas, it's important to note that for thousands of years, Westerners, when they thought about desire, we thought about it through the lens, not of Freud, but Augustine. And if you don't know anything about Augustine, uh, basically what you to know is he was a fourth century, basically African playboy um, who began to follow Jesus. And upon giving his life to Christ, he grew into this towering mind who gave a lot of uh, shape to our Western thought for at least a thousand years. And though this is a little bit heady, it's important that you get this. For Augustine, what he basically taught was that because we are as humans made in the image of a loving God, we are as humans made to love. Now, here's the problem. Because we were born into a fallen, sinful world, the problem now is not that we don't love, it's that we just love the wrong things. Or as Augustine would talk about, we love the right things, but we love them in the wrong order. So for example, is it a bad thing to love your career? No. Like, it's a good thing to love your career. But if you love your career more than you love your kids, like Augustine would say, that's a disordered desire. And anytime you have a disordered desire, destruction and death are just right around the corner. Now, in light of that, what Augustine and writers of the New Testament would say is this, and you need to get this today, that if you want to flourish, if you want to be satisfied, if you want to be fulfilled as a human being, you need to reorder your lives and your loves around Jesus, and you need to say yes to what is right, to the right desires, and you need to learn to say no to the wrong desires, Which means if you're going to be fulfilled, if you're going to be satisfied, you cannot walk around with the mindset of, I just need to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. But you actually need to live with self-discipline and self-control. And when you think about these two things, self-discipline is basically the ability to say yes to what is right, even when you don't want to. And self-control is the ability to say no to what is wrong, even whenever you don't want to. And one just kind of easy, practical example I can give of this this, without embarrassing my wife, since she came to the early service and isn't this one, is my wife recently has decided that because she knows her physical health also impacts her spiritual health, she wants to get physically healthier. And so she set a goal of how much weight she wants to lose. And since August, she's lost like 17 pounds. And she's lost it as the result of self-discipline and self-control. For example, last night, even though it was cold, even though we had a long day at 9 p.m. and we finally got the kids in bed and got everything wrapped up, she went for a one-mile run. She said yes to what is right, even though she didn't want to. Uh, when it comes to self-control, she said, this is how many calories I'm going to take in every day. And even if it's a holiday, even if it's our MC meal and Josh Everett has made some amazing dish or whatever else, it's like she still says, like, this is the amount of calories that I am going to take in, right? So I'm going to say no to what is wrong, anything above that, even if I don't want to. And as a result, listen, because of her self-discipline, because of her self-control, because of her restraint, because of her dying to her flesh, she has experienced over the last couple months not less freedom, but more freedom. Like not less life, but more life. And the reason it's so important for us to get this today is, listen, logically, like you hear that story and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But what you have to understand is culturally, we are being fed a message every single day that says the exact opposite of that. Like We are living in a culture where Freud's ideas have overtaken Augustine's, and I would say the New Testament ideas, to where now we are living in a society where people tell you that suffering comes not as a result of letting your desires run amok, but rather suffering is the result of restriction and restraint. This is, according to Cornelius Planticha in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a book we have for sale on the book table, and I highly recommend it. He said this is given away to what he calls now an ego-centered society. A society where wants had become needs and the self has replaced the soul. People, he says, are now fascinated with how they feel and how they feel about how they feel. In such a culture, listen to this, and in the throes of such fascination, the self now exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, not disciplined or restrained. And nowhere do we see this even more clearly than on social media. Right? In places like Facebook and Twitter, where, for example, you will see someone get on there and say, blast Donald Trump for his sexual morality, and they'll do it from the same phone where they just viewed pornography from. Or where they just like, you know, flirted with someone who wasn't their spouse. Like, it's the definition of the culture we're in, where we are looking at the self as something to be explored and indulged and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. Robert C. Roberts, who is a professor and psychologist and follower of Jesus, says the following in light of this. We have been led to believe as a society that the self is sacrosanct. I mean, that means it's, it's the most important part of us and it should not be interfered with. Like, who are you to ever tell me that I shouldn't pursue my desires? If I want to do it, I should be able to do it, and your authority like, should be nothing. Just as in earlier times it was thought never fitting to deny God, now it feels never right to deny oneself. self. So on the one hand, think about this, guys. On the one hand, you have Jesus literally saying in Matthew 16 that if you want to be his disciple, you have to deny yourself. You have to like it's, it's not optional. But then you have on the other side, our culture that is telling, you no, if you want to be happy, you don't deny yourself. You be true to yourself. Like you just do you. And that sounds really good. But here's the question. Like which you are you supposed to do? Does that make sense? Like, like David Brenner, he talks about in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself. The problem of being true to yourself is you have many part selves, meaning like we all come into the room today, no matter how holy you may look on the outside, right? Like we all come into the room today, a mixed bags of feelings and desires and emotions. And I can give you example after example of this, but I'll start with kind of a a non-emotional, uh, non-heavy example. Um, the grocery store, Okay. So think about the grocery store. Whenever you go to checkout, there is a magazine rack that is sitting right there by the counter. Okay? And typically, from my experience, whenever you look, there'll be one magazine that has this like beautiful celebrity who's half naked. And then set next to it is a magazine that has chocolate cake on the cover of it. Or like a holiday dinner party. And it's all set next to the snacks, like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which is one of my favorite snacks. Now, here's the thing. In that moment, I personally feel some tension. Because on the one hand, I want to look like Thor, right? Like I want to look like Ryan Gosling, who is aging quite well, by the way. (laughs) But on the other hand, I want the enchiladas with extra queso poured over the top of it, right? Like I want the chocolate cake. I want the Reese's peanut butter cups too. And so in that moment, like what do I do? Because both of those desires are authentic. Both of those desires are true and real. So what do I do? Well, here's what the culture would tell you. You buy the men's fitness magazine and you read it while you eat your Reese's peanut butter cups, right? (laughs) Which sounds great, but as we know, it's completely counterproductive. It just doesn't work that way. And though that is kind of a silly example, please hear me. There are far more serious competing desires that are at war within us every single day. And so, for example, if I can just kind of pick on myself again, I really want to be faithful to my wife. I really do. Like, I want to stand the test of time as a kind of guy who's been faithful to her, who's loved her, who's pursued her, uh, someone who has loved her and been to her as I should be, even when she's not as she should be to me. That is a deep desire inside of me. But then there are also times that I desire to have sex with a woman in my mind who's not my spouse. Just being honest. Like, both of those desires at time are in there. Competing desires. Because I have the Holy Spirit, I have a deep desire to become more like Jesus. Deep desire. But I also have a desire to do whatever the heck I want. Like I have desires within me where I I want to, for example, wake up early at 5.30 every morning before my kids are tearing the house down and running around like these little midget demons And I want to just be able to have some quiet time with Jesus, just me and him, time in the word, time praying, just asking him, Father, like what would be pleasing to you today? That's a deep desire within me. But you know what? I also desire to watch YouTube videos late at night or Netflix, which causes me to have to sleep in a little bit later, which causes me to like start my day, like running and chasing my tail. I mean, I can give you example after example, but the point is, listen, guys, like I am even as a pastor, a mixed bag of emotions and feelings and desires and so are you. So are you. Like, we all have competing desires within our souls. And listen, some of these authentic desires really are good and beautiful and true and life-giving, but some of these desires, desires of the flesh, are bad and as a result will lead you to a life of death and slavery. So the question is this morning before we end is, how do we seek to walk and step with the good desires and put to death the bad desires? How do we do that? How do we kill this part of us that is bent in on the self so that we can then live in such a way that is for our good, for the good of those around us, and the glory of God? And to answer that question, I want to look quickly at Galatians chapter 5. So just flip over a couple pages, Galatians chapter 5, is to the left, and Paul's writing here, and I just want to spend about five to ten minutes walking through this. We'll step back, give you some implications, and we'll be done. But Paul, just to kind of give you the context, um, he just finished talking about a well-known slave, Hagar, who was set free but didn't even know what to do with her freedom. <clears throat> and now he moves forward in verse 1. He says the following, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now we read that, and as good Americans, we're like, amen, freedom, yes. But if you keep reading... Um, what Paul means by freedom is oftentimes not what we mean by freedom. Look down to verse 13. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters were called to be free, but look at this. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Now this is the complete opposite of what the world is telling you every day. Do not indulge the flesh. Like you are free, but do not look at your freedom as a license to sin as a license to do what you want when you want. Like Paul is saying here, don't follow your heart. Like, don't just do whatever you desire to do. Rather, he says, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, whenever I first read this, it seemed like that Paul was kind of going on a tangent like that, that, that he was just like jumping from one thing to another because he's sitting here talking about not indulging the flesh. Then he talks about loving other people. So what is, what is Paul doing here? Well, if you know anything about him, you know that he is like a lawyer. He is linear in his thought process. And so without going into all of the, the details and parsing all the verbs, basically what Paul is saying here, and we need to get this, is that to live for the flesh is the antithesis as to love. Like when you're living in the flesh, you're not going to love other people well. Because what is love? Like love, love is not a feeling. We need to get this. Like love is a choice. Love is whenever you decide to do what's good for another, even if it comes as a great cost to you. And what is the flesh? The flesh is the complete opposite of that. The flesh is lazy. The flesh only cares about itself. It only wants to do what is right in that moment for them. And therefore what Paul is saying is you cannot walk in the flesh and love other people well. Therefore, he says, verse 16, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict. They are at war with each other. So listen, guys, you are not to do whatever you want. Again, this is the complete opposite message of the culture. You're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. And then look at verse 19. He is now going to show us, guys, this is what it looks like to sow to the flesh, to follow the desires of the heart. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred. I mean, this is like just beginning to read kind of like the daily news. Discord. Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, which is kind of this idea of like an American dream, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then listen to this warning from Paul. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What if I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart? Those who live such ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to hear that this morning. That that if you continue to say, I'm going to basically pick and choose what parts of the Bible I want to follow. I'm going to pursue my heart's desires. And I'll get around one day to being obedient to Jesus in that area. But for right now, I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do when I want to do it. You have zero confidence that if you die, that you will wake up in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul just said here. Like, that's heavy stuff. He says, this is the life you get whenever you sow to the flesh. So, verse twenty to 22, he goes on to say, don't sow to the flesh, but sow to the spirit. And what is the fruit of the spirit? Verse 22. Listen to this, guys. If you will sow to the spirit rather than the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, verse 22, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Like who in the world, whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not this morning, who in the world does not want that life? Like what Paul just said is, here's how you can know you're walking and step with the Spirit. You're someone of the Spirit rather than the flesh. One is you know you're loved. You're not working your tail off to try to prove something to everybody else in order to get loved. Like you know you're loved by God the Father. And from that place of love, you have this deep well to pull from and love other people. That's what happens when you sow to the Spirit. He says, you don't just have love, you have joy. Some people in this room right now, you are battling depression. You're struggling so much with with melancholy and negativity. and, And so much of your happiness is just tethered to what's happening around you. And what Paul says is when you walk in the Spirit, you have a joy that is rooted not in your circumstances, but in Christ. So you have an unshakable joy, a hope, an optimism that is beyond explainable. He says you also, whenever you sow to the Spirit, you have peace. We live in one of the most anxious societies of all time, and whenever you sow to the Spirit, think about this, guys, you can breathe. You can be a calm, confident, non-anxious presence in the midst of an incredibly anxious society. Whenever you sow to the Spirit, you're, you have patience. Even with your kids, even with your spouse on the way to Sunday church, right? You can be kind, good, a person of integrity, faithful. I mean, the list goes on. You can have self-control. This is a life of sowing to the Spirit. Paul then goes on and he says in verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In, in other words, what he's saying is because once you give your life to Christ, because you've been buried with Christ and raised to new life, because your desires of the flesh have been crucified with Christ, you no longer have to be controlled by your appetites. That's what he's saying here. You no longer have to do whatever your desires are telling you to do in the moment. Like you can in the words of the great reformer John Owen, you now have the ability to put your sin to death before it puts you to death. Why? Because he says, again, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then verse 25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, a lot in there, but to summarize, and stay with me, we're about done this morning. To summarize, Paul says, in Christ, you have been set free. You are no longer a slave. You are free. But listen, you are not free to live however you want. You are free to walk in line now with how you were created and designed to live. And for Paul, what he goes on to say is the way that you do this, the way that you put the flesh to death and you walk in line with the way you were created to walk is by walking in step with the Holy Spirit. This is this point all through Galatians chapter 5. I mean, he says in verse 16, live by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Four verbs that form one crystal clear word picture of walking in the Spirit. And what Paul wants you to see today is this is how we kill. This is how we mortify. This is how we die to our flesh, which means, please hear me, if you want to break free from your addictions if you want to break free from from lust or greed or apathy or anxiety or slothfulness or whatever it is, if you want to experience life to the fullest as Jesus has come to give it to you, it's not going to come from you just white-knuckling it. Like, it's not going to come from you just saying no to drugs. Like, it's not going to come from you trying harder to be better. You need to get this today. Like, you're not gonna be able to just like pull yourself up by your bootstraps in your own strength. Like, like willpower is a great thing, but willpower alone will not save you. Willpower is limited. Willpower, right? Like, you wake up in the morning and you can pull the drain on your willpower. By the time you get to the end of the day, it's gone. That's why most of us, the stupid decisions we've made in our life have happened past 8pm. Right? Willpower is not enough. Like willpower will not free you from your addiction, which is rooted in something much deeper than your desire for drugs and alcohol. It it does not stand a chance against pornography and generational sins. And therefore, what Paul wants you to see here, as you see on the screen, is the solution to overcoming the flesh is not found in willpower, but it's found in the Spirit's power. And the good news is today is, please hear me, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have access to that power right now. Right now. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gave Jesus the power to raise from the dead. You ever thought about that? Like, you have the same power that raised Christ from the dead inside of you. Which means now you have everything that you need to walk free. And when I say walk free, please understand me, I don't mean that you now have the freedom to do whatever you want. I mean you have the freedom to not do whatever you want. You have the freedom, rather than being controlled by your fleshly desires and appetites, you can cultivate the kind of life where through the Spirit you can now produce. You, you, yes, you as an individual, you can right now, no matter who you are or where you come from, begin to cultivate the kind of life where you experience love and joy and peace and patience and so on. All by walking in the Spirit. The question is, this morning, is how do you do this? At least I hope you should be, hopefully you're asking that question by now. Because there are some of you, like you're the, you're, you're the opposite of love. You're experiencing the opposite of love, the opposite of joy, the opposite of peace. So how do you begin to walk in the Holy Spirit? And I wish there was just an easy button, or it's just like, like you just flip it on, like Spirit's power, right? Like you Just flick it on. But here's the reality, and please get this today. If you want to walk in the Holy Spirit, you have to do that through the spiritual disciplines. Meaning, you need to, if you want to walk in the Holy Spirit, I'm just telling you, you have to read your Bible. You have to open this up and you have to meditate. You have to take this right here and you have to put it right in here. doesn't matter who you are or how you're hardwired. I'm not a reader. doesn't matter. Listen to it on, on audio. Whatever you have to do. like We need to spend time in the scriptures. If you want to walk in the spirit, we need to be a people who are persisting in prayer. Even whenever it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceilings. You need to be someone who's engaging in community. And I'll just tell you right now, community is stinking hard. It is so hard. Because you're with other people who are sinners just like you. And you're going to fight and you're going to argue. But you know what? You're going to be tethered together through Christ. And if you will stay together and rally around him, it'll do a work in you like you could never imagine. You need to be involved in Christian community. You need to keep showing up to things like this on Sunday morning. Like we need to make this a scheduled event every single week. or we say, come hell or high water, my plan is to be here on Sunday mornings. Because, guys, think about how weird and unique this is. Like just think about how weird this is right now. Look at what we're doing. Like, I'm standing on the stage teaching from the Bible. You just sung some songs to some guys that were on a, you know, while they were singing on on a stage. You're about to take communion. We pass offering baskets around. You put money. What is all of that about? It's about literally you interrupting your life for just a little bit each week and remembering you're not the center of the universe that Jesus is. This is huge in your spiritual development. It's huge when it comes to us learning how to walk and step with the Holy Spirit. And there are so many other disciplines that I could talk about this morning. But what I just want to say is we, as we kind of talk about our practice for this week, because as you know, every year we do this series. This is one of them. It's a practicing series where we're taking a teaching. We're working on it together in communities. And this week, and a lot of talking about spiritual disciplines, because we really believe that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare, we want to practice over the next two weeks, actually, confession and fasting. Next week, we'll focus on fasting. This week, we're going to focus on the, uh, on the spiritual discipline of confession. And if you're in a missional community, I would encourage you, to make sure you show up at your MC meal today, because we'll dive into this. We'll talk about it with your MC leader of how do we actually confess our sin to God and one another. Um, and then if you're not in a missional community, you can go to crossingparagord.com forward slash practices and you can learn about confession there, all for the purpose again of helping us learn how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. All that being said, as we end this morning, the main thing I want you to walk away with today is this. The definition of freedom in our secular society is radically at odds with Jesus' definition of freedom. And you have to get that. Radically at odds. Our society will tell you that freedom is to do whatever the hell you want to do. And I use that word hell intentionally. To just live it up. You only get one shot. So enjoy and pursue and sleep with and buy and do whatever you desire as long as it doesn't seem like it hurts anybody else around you. Whereas for Jesus, his definition for freedom, the one that actually gives us flourishing life, is not the ability to do whatever you want, but it's the ability now through the Spirit to not do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability that you now have in Christ through the Spirit to edit your desires, to say no to what Jesus says no to, and yes, what he says yes to. Like, this is the key to experiencing life abundantly. And therefore, in light of that, as we close this morning, the call from Jesus to you today is to bring all of your life under his authority. To bring your desires, to bring your budget, to bring your schedule, to bring your emotions, to bring your feelings, to bring your dreams, to bring your vision for the good life all to the cross. And to trust Jesus' upside down vision of the good life where he says that those who want to find their life have to first lose it. And so trust that whenever you do that, that just as Jesus died to himself literally on the cross and on the other end of that death there was a resurrection, there was life abundantly, the same will be true for you today whenever you come to Christ, when you lay it all down at the cross. And to help us embody that truth every week, listen, we partake of communion. And I want to, I just want to, if I can capture your attention for just about 45 more seconds. This is incredibly, this is an incredibly important part of our worship service. We would not do this just for the fun of it or because it's like it's just something else to do. Jesus has commanded us when we come together to take of communion. And so we come together, and and what we do is when we tear off a piece of bread, we remember the body of Christ, that God, rather than making us work our way to him, he took on flesh and blood, and his flesh was perfect flesh. It was sinless flesh. And then we remember when we dipped in the juice that he went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice, and he shed his blood for you and me for the forgiveness of our sins. So no matter, guess what, no matter how perverted you've been this week, no matter what you've done, no matter how fleshly you have become, if that's even a word, you can be fully forgiven in Christ. And you can come and you can remember that. You can remember your freedom and forgiveness by partaking of communion. We have two stations in the front again, two in the back, gluten-free option for you, my back left, your back right. If you are here today, though, and you are not a Christian, man, I pray today is a day of salvation for you. I pray that you would take seriously the fact, guys, that there really is a heaven, there really is a hell, there really is an eternity. And I was just reminded just even yesterday, we have no idea when we're going to enter into that. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is calling for some of you today in a room this size. I cannot believe that the Holy Spirit is not calling for some of you to fully give your life to Jesus for the first time ever. Some of you, you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. You have not trusted Him as your Lord. He will not be your Savior if He's not your Lord. And today He's calling you to bring everything, to come with the empty hands of faith to Him, to lay it at the cross, and to trust that in Him is the life you're longing for. That being said, I'm going to invite you to stand as the band comes forward. I want to pray for us, and then we'll partake of communion, and we'll sing another song and be dismissed. Father, I do thank you so much for everyone who um, is here today. I pray that now through your word, which is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, drive it into our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you as you really are and to walk in the freedom that is found in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.